check out both of those. I think you'll get some extra edification from doing that. <clears throat> I hope, as these lessons progress and as they have progressed, that you are coming to appreciate more just how purposeful the Word of God is. Every word, every detail in the original manuscripts translated into our own language is perfect and placed just as God desired in his book to us. And with God's illuminating spirit, his Holy Spirit, you and I can understand it. But we do need to approach the text properly. And by now you should be very familiar with our three-step method for reading and understanding the Bible. What is our method? Yo, Greg. That's right. Very good. Observe, interpret, apply. We're looking to see what's there, um, what does it mean, and then how does it work in our own lives. Each one of these steps is critical, as I've emphasized. You've got to take time to actually observe what is there in the text. You need to be able to effectively pull together those different observations uh, into an interpretation that uh, mimics the author's original intention, and then you need to transfer that intention into something that you can actually practice in your own life for the happiness and praise of God. And when it comes to observation, there's so much to see in the Bible. There's so much to notice, so many different clues, so to speak, that we can assemble when it comes time to interpret. And we've looked at a number of, of the main types of observation, and I grouped them by focus as I've introduced them to you. Those first three, um, they're based on the substance of the text, people, places, and times. Just to see if, if you're still tracking with these different concepts, what's one thing that we look for when we're looking to observe the people in the Bible? What's one thing we look for with people? Well, remember trying to understand them and kind of their character, or how they work, what they're thinking. But how can we do that? We don't have access to their thoughts many times. Very good. We look at what, how they're described or what do people say about them. Eric? Okay. Yeah, um, looking at the different places that they appear and what do they do in those different places or what do they say in those different places. Those are all things we look for with people. What about places? What are, what's something we're looking for with places? Yeah, Eric. Exactly. One of the most fundamental things. Where is it? When you hear about um, Ramoth Gilead, where is that? That doesn't have any um, significance to me if I don't know where it is or if I don't know what it's like. What's a place like? Where is it? How far is it from other places? Those are things we're looking for. And what about times? What's something we're looking for with times? Very good. Very good, Bill. Uh, we're looking for the sequence. When does something happen in, in relation to other things? When does something happen? We are just looking for simply when does it happen? Um, how far did something happen? Or how long ago did something happen before something else happened? Those are all things we're looking for with times. Very good. So this all has to do with the substance of the text. The next set, the next four, have to do with the medium of the text itself. And we've looked at these different observation types. Terms, grammar, context, and structure. When we look for terms, what's something that we're looking for? Um, we are going to talk a little bit more about repetition. Um, so yes, we are looking for repetition of, of different terms. That's actually under a different observation type. So that is true. That is good. Um, but something else. Yeah, Brian. Words we don't know. Yeah, words that we don't recognize, words that we don't know. Or words from the original languages, the Greek and Hebrew of the Bible or words that have a meaning that's very special in, in uh, that particular verse, where it might be different, the meaning might be a little different than what we think. We're looking for those things with terms. Very good. What about grammar? What's something that we can look for with grammar? Yes. Yes, very good. That's one of the things I highlighted for you when we talked about grammar. We look for verbs. What tense is it? Is it future tense? Ah, that could be instructive. Or 
what voice is it? Is it a passive verb? That indicates then that the subject is not doing the action, it's receiving the action that someone else is doing. We look for those types of things. We look for transition words, words like but and for, because they indicate something about the, the movement of ideas in a certain passage. We look at subject, we look at um, direct object, all those different types of things. Good. Now, context. Context is king. Remember, context is one of the most important things when it comes to interpreting a section of scripture. Um, context meaning uh, the situation that something is in, especially in the text, what's around it. But there are different levels of context. Uh, what's one level of context that we should be looking at? Yeah, Eric. Okay, so that's a little bit of the historical context. What's the occasion of um, the book being written? Who's writing it? Who's it being written to? Very good. We looked at um, other types of context as well. The immediate context, what appears right before and right after a section of the Bible. The rest of, that, uh, the, rest of the book in which that text appears. And then, of course, the rest of the Bible. We need to, we need to fit whatever is said in a certain scripture with the rest of scripture if we're going to be able to interpret it properly. And then finally, structure. Structure is something that, based on our other observations, we'll be able to observe a little bit better. But oftentimes, or there is one thing that we can do, and that we even practiced last week, to get a good handle on the structure of a certain passage, or even uh, of a book. What's one way that we can work to discern a uh, passage's structure? Yeah, very good. Actually, it's amazing how lucid, how clear our structure becomes when we actually take the time to say, all right, let me try and divide this text myself. Let me see where the grouping of ideas actually fall, and let me divide up the text and write the label, the main idea of that section. And we did that last week with the passage. It's a great way to observe this structure. So we looked at those seven, and then this last group of six, we've only looked at the first two, has to do with interactions uh, between different parts of the text. And we looked at two last week, and uh, one of them is actually what Shay was alluding to before. Um, but before we get to that one, there's one before that. I don't want to mess up the order because it corresponds to a little mnemonic with our hands, right? Talking about the hand, what does the thumb represent? What are we looking for? And the thumb, first finger, kind of offset. Yeah, that's right. Looking for things emphasized organizationally. And I gave you a couple ways that things can be emphasized organizationally. What was one? Yeah, very good. When the author actually tells us why he wrote something. If he states the purpose, that's something emphasized in the organization. What else? Okay, we'll get to that in just a second. That's not so much in the emphasized organization, but that's another type of emphasis. Amount of space given to a certain topic. Yeah, what was the focus of the writer? What is he devoting most of, the, most of his time in a certain section to talk about? And um, anybody remember the other one? Order, very good. What's the order? What comes first? What comes uh, last? Why does, what, um, why does one thing come after a certain other thing? Those are things we want to pay attention to in the organization. That's going to help us discern the structure, which is going to help us more with the purpose. And then, now hitting the other one, the second finger, we're looking for things that are Repeated, repeated, very, very good. And uh, as Shay mentioned, we're looking for repeated words. I've grouped it under grammar. We're looking for repeated grammar, terms, phrases, sentences. We see those types of repetitions, we want to note them. There are other types of repetition, though. Can anybody remember what they were? Not just grammatical repetition, but... Very good, Bill. Whenever we see the Old Testament repeated into the New Testament, that's another repetition that we want to note. And especially we want to dig more deeply with something we can do anytime we see an Old Testament verse quoted in the New Testament. We actually did it last week when we looked at an Old Testament verse, or repeated in this way. Yeah, Kara, or Sandy.
Yeah, and sometimes we hear about, um, I can't remember um, a specific instance of referring to the child sacrifice in the New Testament, but when they do, if they were to refer to child sacrifice, so they refer to what people were doing in the Old Testament, in the New Testament, you always want to go back to that original instance and get a better handle on what, how it was used originally. When we did that with the verse that Jesus quotes um, in the synagogue, where he's, he tells the people there, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing, when we went back to the original verse in the Old Testament, we noticed that Jesus seems to stop right in the middle of a verse, where the verse isn't even finished, but he stops quoting it. And that, that was significant. And we only saw that once we went back to look at the original. We do look for repetition of grammar, repetition of the Old Testament into the New Testament, also repetition of circumstances. Whenever you see certain situations that happen again, kind of like those deja vu moments, we look for that. We also look for patterns, repeated types, where um, somebody seems to be acting exactly like Jesus in multiple ways, or exactly like the Antichrist, or John the Baptist is almost exactly like Elijah in multiple, multiple ways, in multiple situations. We look for those types, those patterns as well. All right, very good. So we're going to finish up with the, the last part of this group of six, these last four observations. Uh, we've assembled a good number of observation types at this point, but this is not a list of duties for you to fulfill whenever you come to read the Bible. These are tools. They are tools that are available for you, available to you, so that you can better answer the question, what do I see? And the more that we can see, the better off we will be when it comes time to make interpretation and apply that interpretation in our lives. So today, our plan is, look at the final four observation types. I'll explain those to you, and then we'll practice using different parts of the scripture. Again, these last, this last set have to do with interactions within the text. Let's pray as we dig into this. Let's pray. <clears throat> Our Lord and Master, we thank you for this time in Sunday school. I thank you for these people uh, that you have brought. I pray, Lord, that this would be a, a, a sweet time and a profitable time, that you would enable me to speak clearly, that you would allow your scripture to be understood clearly, and, Lord, it would be something that even here changes us. Bless this time, God. Speak through me for your own glory. Pray this in your name. Amen. Okay. <clears throat> Oops. All right. So, we're going to keep using the hand analogy. We're going to keep using the hand mnemonic to remember these last set of six. And so far, we've looked at things emphasized organizationally. We've looked at things repeated. But our third finger is a third observation type in this set, and one that I want you to remember, and that is things related. We're going to be looking for things that are related. There we go. Now, this is appropriate for the third finger because <clears throat> the middle finger is a finger that we almost always use in conjunction with other fingers. You do not want to use the third finger by itself. Proper use of this finger is always in relation to the other fingers. And that helps us remember things related. We're going to be looking for things that they don't appear by themselves. They're connected to other things around them. And they're broken it down. Or there are three, three types of relations we want to pay attention to specifically. Whenever we see in the text movement from something general to something specific, also cause and effect, and then question and answer. Let's take a look at the first one. For general to specific, you're looking for a movement of ideas from a general principle or summary statement to a more specific explanation of that principle or specific examples of that statement. For example, think about Genesis 1.1. What does that verse say? Yeah, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. But right after that statement, or a couple verses later, what do we see in chapter 1 of Genesis? Can you explain that a little bit more? Exactly. We get a more, exactly, exactly. We get a more specific explanation of that creation process in the six days, the six literal days that God used to create the earth. So first we get a general summary statement, as it were, God created the heavens and the earth, but then a specific 
explanation of that creation. That's an example of movement from general to specific. Well, let's look at another instance. Open your Bibles and turn to Luke chapter 3, verses 7 to 14. This is John the Baptist talking. Let's look for another instance of a general statement and then specific examples or explanations of that statement. I'll read the passage to you. Tell me if you can notice a movement from general to specific. Again, I'm reading from the New American Standard. Verse 7. So he began saying to the crowds who were going out, to be baptized by him. You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Therefore bear fruits in keeping with repentance. And do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham for our father. For I say to you, from these stones God is able to raise up children to Abraham. Indeed, the axe is already laid at the root of the trees. So every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And the crowds were questioning him, saying, Then what shall we do? And he would answer and say to them, The man who has two tunics is to share with him who has none, and he who has food is to do likewise. And some tax collectors also came to be baptized, and they said to him, Teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, Collect no more than what you have been ordered to. Some soldiers were questioning him, saying, And what about us? What shall we do? And he said to them, Do not take money from anyone by force, or accuse anyone falsely, and be content with your wages. Okay. So, is there a general statement here that is later on given some specific explanation or examples? I would say there is. Uh, what's the general statement? Repentance. What's specifically about repentance? Okay, very good. Um, somebody else want to add to that? Right, he's connecting what is real repentance. He says, if you, if you want to flee from the wrath, if you want to repent, then bear fruits. And then he shows you some examples of that, right? What are some examples of fruits of repentance? Eric. That's right. He says, he who has two tunics, share with him who has none. Now, what's another example? Say that again. <clears throat> Very good. To so the tax collectors, he says, don't collect any more than, is, than you are assigned to collect. These are just examples of that general concept. Bear fruit worthy of repentance. And that's, that's useful to figure out because otherwise you might think, oh, that's the only thing that the tax collectors need to worry about. All they have to do is this. Or the soldiers, all right, that's the only thing they need to be concerned about. No, those are just examples. Their whole lives need to characterize fruits of repentance. But he says, you want an example of that? Here's something for you specifically. Again, we see this movement from general to specific. Let's look at one more example. Turn to Matthew 6. And this time, you're going to read the section yourself. I want you to read verses 1 to 18. And as you do that, look again, keep an eye out, for movement from general to specific. As you read through those verses. Verses 1 to 18 in Matthew 6. See if you can see a general statement or principle and then specific examples of that. I'll give you, I'll give you a minute. <clears throat> Let's go ahead and do that now.
if you need to need a little bit more time to read this section, that's okay. But hopefully you already see there's a, a movement of this type again. What's the movement from general to specific here in Matthew 6? Uh, Craig. Very good. That's an excellent breakdown, Craig. We, um, we see, indeed, a general principle or statement in the very first verse. The organization of this chapter, or the, those who put the chapters and verses here, have helped us. Because we see, indeed, this general statement, beware of practicing your righteousness before men to be noticed by them, otherwise you'll have no reward with your Father in heaven, governs the next few examples that appear in chapter 6. We do see an example about giving. When you give to the poor, here's how you can put this principle into practice. Do it in secret. You'll be rewarded. When you pray, don't do it in front of other people so you can get the reward from them. Get your reward from God. Um, And when you fast, don't do it so that people can see you again. Look at the principle. Don't do your righteousness before men. Do it, so just do it for the Lord and He'll reward it even if it's done in secret. So again, we see this movement from general to specific. You might be thinking by now, hey, that's kind of easy. And looking at general, uh, distinguishing, discerning general to specific movements in the text is somewhat straightforward once you know to look for it. So that is one of the things that you should be looking for and observing as you read the Bible. That's only one of the types of relations that we want to look for. We also want to look for cause and effect. And um, that can be, or let me say it this way, cause and effect is the idea that one event or condition is the cause or brings about some other event or condition. And sometimes we are helped in identifying cause and effect by certain clue words. Just like we're helped in discerning contrast when we see the word but. What's a clue word that shows us that what appears at one part, what comes after it, um, is either the cause or the effect? Okay, uh, if then, that's going to set up a cause and effect. Very good. What else? Yeah, Eric. Thus, thus or therefore, those are great cause and effect words. Any other ones? Yeah, so, in some cases, the word so is another indicator of cause and effect. Yeah, these words like for, therefore, consequently, because of this, so, if then, those are all telling you that there's a relationship of cause and effect being expressed there. But even without these words, we can look for, even if those clue words don't appear, we can still discern cause and effect in many instances in the Bible. For example, in Genesis chapter 3, turn over there to Genesis, back at the beginning of the Bible. Genesis 3, verses 22 to 24. There's a cause and effect related to the expulsion of Adam and Eve from the Garden of Eden. Let's look at that. Genesis 3, verses 22 to 24. This is what the Bible says. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. And now he might stretch out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out from the Garden of Eden to cultivate the ground from which he was taken. So he drove the man out. And at the east of the garden, he stationed the cherubim and the flaming sword, which turned every direction to guard the way to the tree of life. Now we see here our clue word, or one clue word, therefore. But even without that, we can see a cause and effect here. The effect, probably readily discernible, Adam and Eve are driven out of the garden. But what is the cause? In a general sense, it is their sin. But there's something more specifically expressed here. Not only that they sinned and God's taken them out of the garden, but there's a, there's a more specific reason. Yeah, Yolanda. Yes, yes. The reason here is not merely because they sinned and so they don't get to enjoy the garden anymore. He says there would be a danger if they stayed in the garden now because now they both know good and evil. They, they know good and evil and the tree of life is there. If they take, out from the, they take a fruit and eat from the tree of life, they'll live forever. So he says they can't be in the garden anymore. 
specifically because the tree of life is there. So yes, it is indeed because of their sin, that is the cause of their expulsion, but more specifically, it's so that they won't be living forever in this state of knowing good and evil, uh, this state of sin. So we see this cause and effect by looking, or by, by looking to observe it. <clears throat> Let's look at another example back in the New Testament, Acts chapter 8. So this is um, about five or six books in on the New Testament, Acts chapter 8. We'll look at verses 1 to 4 for some more examples of cause and effect. And there are a bunch of them here. See if you can observe them. Acts chapter 8, verses 1 to 4. I'll read. Saul was in hearty agreement with putting him to death. By the way, quick look at the context. Who's the him? Stephen, yes. And on that day, a great persecution began against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Some devout men buried Stephen and made loud lamentation over him. But Saul began ravaging the church, entering house after house, and dragging off men and women. He would put them in prison. Therefore, those who had been scattered went about preaching the word. So, there are a number of examples here of cause and effect, but what's one? Yes, uh, I'm going to break that down into two pieces. This persecution arises and it causes the believers to scatter. So there's a cause and effect. But there's another cause and effect. The scattering of the believers causes the word to be spread. And if you look at the rest of the chapter, it's spread into regions where it previously hadn't gone, among the Samaritans, and then even, as we look at the, the chapters that come after this, to the Gentiles. So that's a cause and effect we might not expect. Persecution by the Jews of the believers in Jerusalem actually led to the expansion of the gospel to new regions. Interesting cause and effect. And there are more here. We could talk about um, why did this persecution begin? What was the cause of this persecution by Saul and the others? What sparked it? Uh, Gabriella. That's right. For whatever reason, Stephen's death inspired the persecutors to go after the rest of the Christians. So, in the amazing wisdom of God, that wisdom that's beyond understanding, he would use the death and the testimony of one of his martyrs through a series of cause and effects actually result in the expansion of the gospel to new, to new regions. And that's, the, that's the mind and that's the wisdom of our Lord. And that's also cause and effect. So we see general to specific, we see cause and effect of things related in the Bible, but also question and answer. And question and answer is kind of like cause and effect. When somebody asks a question, it's only natural that uh, an answer would, would be the result of that question. But like cause and effect, sometimes the answer is not exactly what we would expect. So whenever you see a question asked, look for the answer, even if the answer is only implied. Let me bring back an example from last week. Um, you don't have to turn there, but you can. In Acts 1.8, in the preceding verses, the disciples ask Jesus a question. They say, Lord, is it now that you are going to restore the kingdom to Israel? But what is his answer? In verses 7 to 8 in Acts 1. If you remember, Eric? Right, he says, it's not for you to know. And what, do you remember what else he said? Verse 8? Very good. So the disciples, they may have been expecting a yes or no answer or maybe some indication of time. Are you going to destroy the kingdom now? No. Are you going to destroy the kingdom now? Well, no, not right now, but in a hundred years or so. They don't get that. Instead, Jesus says, verse 7, it's not for you to know the times of the epics that God has determined. You don't need to worry about the specific timing of the coming kingdom, but you will be clothed with power. You will be empowered by the Holy Spirit and you'll be my witnesses. So that's a very poignant answer. He says, and if you're, if you're excited about the kingdom, if you're wondering about the kingdom, here's my answer to that. Focus instead on your coming empowerment and being a witness of the gospel. 
So that's an example of question and answer that we want to pay attention to. Another person who uses question and answer a lot is the Apostle Paul, and probably no greater frequency than in the book of Romans. We could look all over that book for different questions and answers. It's a way he advances the ideas in his argument, but let's take a look at one specific instance of question and answer, several of them, in Romans 9. So this is just one book right after Acts. Turn to Romans 9, and let's look at verses 18 to 21. As I read this, discern, observe the questions and the answers. It's Romans 9, verses 18 to 21. So then, he, that's God, has mercy on whom he desires, and he hardens whom he desires. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who resists his will? On the contrary, who are you, O man, who answers back to God? The thing molded will not say to the molder, why did you make me like this? Will it? On the, um, or does the, not the potter have a right over the clay to make from the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for common use? Okay, so a series of questions there. Tell me, what is one question that you observe and what is its answer in these verses? What's one question and what's its answer? Yes. Yes, very good. That's, and that's a great, great observation because, again, this is kind of unexpected. Um, the question is, if God is, looking at the context here, talking about the sovereignty of God to, uh, to be merciful to one person and not be merciful to another, especially when it comes to salvation, it says... If God is in control of all this, then why does he hold men accountable? Why does he find fault with them? Because if God's will is supreme, how can he, how can he judge what men choose to do? Because they're essentially not, they're not doing it. That seems like a fair question, right? But the response is interesting. He says, he doesn't answer by saying, well, let me tell you. He says, who are you, O oh man, to answer back to God? Indeed, he answers the question with a question. But even by using that question as an answer, um, he's saying something very profound about this question. Uh, when we look for explanation of how God's supreme will and man's accountable will, man's free will, fit together, he answers it in this way. And when indeed, as we look at the second question, who are you to answer back to God? What's the answer to that? Exactly, right? You have to assume a very diminished position. You say, I'm a nobody. I'm just a tiny little creation. Or, as he's going to say in the, the words that come right after it, I'm just like a little pot. And Because that's going to lead to his next question. He says, <clears throat> The thing molded will not say to the molder, Why did you make me like this, will it? That is, a pot's not going to tell its maker, or ask its maker, oh, Why did you put the handle on this side? Or, Why did you make me into this kind of pot? He's not going to do that, will he? Answer? No, this is one of those questions that expects a negative answer. That would be ridiculous. Pots don't talk. And even if they did, they wouldn't have a right to question their maker and say something like, oh, why am I not that kind of pot? You're a pot. The potter can do whatever he wants with you. So there's an expected answer to that. Yeah, you land it. Hmm. Yes, that's an excellent observation, even observing this, this similar situation and uh, the similar response that, that, God, that God has, God has through Paul here, but also through Job in, in that book. When the answer is not one of explanation, like, all right, let me tell you how it works. He just says, wait, remember who you are. Remember who you are when it comes to your demanding explanation from God. And <clears throat> this is really useful for us, and uh, um, it's one of the reasons why uh, hold on a second. Let me find out specifically where I wrote it down. When dealing with the question of God's sovereign will and man's free will, great preachers uh, throughout history, those who have been faithful to the word, have not tried to explain the way they relate together except to say that both are true. 
Yes, God is completely sovereign. Nothing's going to happen unless he makes it happen. And yet, you are completely accountable. Your will is free to the point that God says, whatever you choose is what I'm going to judge you. That's the basis for my judgment. If you choose me, you'll be blessed. If you don't choose me, you'll be cursed and you'll be destroyed. How can those things fit together? We'll be asking the same question as this guy here. What? How can God be doing that if he's sovereign? There's no attempt at an explanation from Paul. And I think we'd be wise to not try and explain that further ourselves. Because when we do, we always diminish one side. We make God less sovereign and man more sovereign, or we make man less accountable. This question and answer is very significant for us in understanding even this, this very important concept of who's really responsible for salvation. So we want to notice these questions and answers as we move through the Bible. So to sum up this, we're looking for things related. We're looking for general to, movements from general to specific. We're looking for cause and effect. We're looking for question and answer. Questions before we move on? Right, so we've covered three. Let's move on to the fourth. Our fourth finger, and the next thing that we want to observe when it comes to interactions within the text, between different parts of the text, is things that are alike. Looking for things alike. Now, this is a little bit of overlap with things repeated, but we're focusing mainly on comparisons, especially figurative comparisons. And we use the fourth finger here because, well, the fourth finger is a lot like the third finger. Maybe it's a tiny little bit shorter, but they're really very alike fingers. So you can remember things alike in that way. I say figurative comparisons because when we're looking for things alike, we're looking especially for similes and metaphors. And those are figurative comparisons. Can anybody tell me what a simile is? Yes. Yeah. Yes, that's an excellent example. A simile, you compare two things that are pretty unlike, but you use the word like or as in your comparison. And a metaphor is quite similar. You just do that without using like or as. And I, I have this quote on there. This is actually something I opened up from a fortune cookie one time. The book is a ball of light in one's hand. Is that a simile or is that a metaphor? It's a metaphor. It, the book is not literally a ball of light, but it's similar to a ball of light, and so I'll say that it is. That's a metaphor. If we want to change it to a simile, we just add the word like. The book is like a ball of light in one's hand. Now, when it comes to similes and metaphors, we use them all the time, even in our own language. If you tried to count how many times in a day you use a simile and metaphor, you probably lose count because we don't even realize it. Metaphors and similes are so useful because they very efficiently, very succinctly describe something and very vividly describe something. For example, if you, if you have a favorite team, maybe an NFL team, you might say something, or the difference would be, using a metaphor, between our team lost very badly versus our team got slaughtered. Now, the second one uses a metaphor, and it's more vivid, and it's more concise. You get the, a certain feeling from that term. You say, oh, it was a dramatic defeat. It was a terrible defeat when you use a metaphor like slaughter. The problem with metaphors and similes, though, is that certain metaphors become so common that they become dead metaphors. Um, if you haven't heard that term before, it's one useful to know. A dead metaphor is one, and this is similar to similes, one that because it's so common, you don't think about the metaphorical comparison anymore. Here's an example. Uh, someone might say, oh, yeah, so-and-so got axed. He was axed last Friday. When someone says that, what do they actually mean? Someone got fired. Someone got dismissed. Somebody was removed. But the metaphor is actually comparing being removed from a job to what? Say that again, Yolanda. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. The chopping off of something. The cutting off of a limb or a tree or dead weight or something like that. When you actually think about the metaphor, that's it's kind of um, a little bit violent, a little bit cruel, a little bit impersonal. Like, oh, just just chop off like that. Yeah, what were you going to say? Yeah, yeah, maybe so. It, we don't even realize it with these dead metaphors, these ones that are so common. We don't even think about the comparison anymore. But um, this, is, this is important for us, if you just appreciate language, it's important to think about those metaphors, but it's especially important when it comes to thinking about the metaphors and similes in the Bible. Because there are certain metaphors and similes that we've heard all the time 
that again, we don't even think about them. But if, when we do, when we take time to think about them and observe them, we'll realize there's actually some rich instruction inside. Let's, yeah, Proverbs is, is a good example of that. Let me point you to two different ones, though. First one in, in the Psalms. Turn to Psalm 42.1. Psalm 42.1. And when you get there, you're going to be like, oh, I've heard this all the time. But let's think about it. <clears throat> Psalm 42.1 says... As the deer pants for the water brooks, so my soul pants for you, O God. This is something we've heard. It's in our songs sometimes. What two things are being compared here through this simile? Okay, yes, the deer is panting for water just as the psalmist's soul is panting for God. Now, I really appreciate that. We need to know what it means to pant. We need to think about that term. What does is, what is, uh, pant mean? Yeah, Eric. Okay, that's, the, that's kind of like a more metaphorical rendering, but you would find it if you go to a dictionary. To yearn for, to long for something, that's uh, one way to understand pant. But that really comes from the literal meaning of the word pant. What is the literal meaning of pant? Yes. Panting is something you do. To pant is to breathe rapidly or to breathe laboriously. Something that you do usually when you're tired, when you're exhausted. And if you ever observe a dog who's exerted itself, you often see panting. It's like their tongue's hanging out. And uh, maybe you played fetch with them a little bit, and you bring them back inside. And what's the first thing that they look for? Water. Because when you're tired, you're breathing heavily, you want water. So, bringing that understanding to this simile, um, he says, like a deer that pants for water. Okay, now let's think about about that a little bit. Why would a deer be panting for water? Well, probably because it's exhausted. But why would it be exhausted? Right. The deer must have exerted itself in some way, right? He's probably not doing it just for exercise or for fun. He was in danger. He's tired either because he's run, he's been running away from something, or he's been without water for a long time. He's starving or he's, he's um, thirsty. He says, that's the way my soul feels about you, God. Now, if we understand that, that simile, that's not an image so much of excitement as it is desperation and affliction, which makes sense with what comes next in the psalm. Look at verse 3, where he says, My tears have been my food day and night, while they say to me all day long, Where is your God? This simile shows us a lot about the emotional state of the speaker. He's in an afflicted state. He's in a desperate state where he actually literally might even be like a deer who is running away from his enemies or who is tired from the various trials that he's gone through. We will miss that if we don't actually take the time to observe the simile. One other example. Turn to John 3.3. This is a metaphor this time. This is another one that we've heard a lot, but we might not really think about. And by not thinking about it, we miss something very important. This is Jesus and Nicodemus. They're having a a little discussion. And Jesus says this to Nicodemus in verse 3. Jesus answered and said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, cannot see the kingdom of God. All right, this is a metaphor. What two things are being compared? What is like what? Is like? Very good. Seeing the kingdom of God is, be, is like being born again. It's like being born. Or we can understand seeing the kingdom of God like being saved. To be saved or being saved is like being born or like being born again. We actually think about that metaphor a little bit. It's very instructive. Because think about birth. <clears throat> For a baby to be born, there are a number of things that need to happen. The baby needs to have a mom and a dad. The baby needs to be conceived. 
It needs to be nourished in a womb. And it needs to be delivered from the womb into the world. How much of that is brought about by the baby? None of it, right? You might say, well, the baby's able to move around and stuff like that. But he doesn't have any control, really, on any of those processes. He can't choose parents for himself. He can't conceive himself because it doesn't even exist. And even once he's conceived, he's completely dependent upon his mother for nourishment and life and also for delivery from the womb into the world. The baby doesn't do anything to be born. And yeah, Jesus says that's what seeing the, kingdom of lo- seeing the kingdom of God is like. That's what salvation is like. If that is true, what's the implication about salvation? Say that again. That's right. It is a free gift from God, and how much of it are we responsible for? None. None. It has to be accomplished by someone outside of us. We're like a baby that needs to be born, and babies can't do anything. If Jesus says, to be saved, you're going to have to be born, that has to come from some outside source. The only person that can come from is God. And this is, uh, this is somewhat baffling to Nicodemus. And yet, it is, uh, it is fundamental. God, indeed, salvation is the gift of God. It is the, it is the working of God. And uh, we, are, we are completely dependent upon him. Otherwise, we can't be saved. Yeah. Um, I think, I think you could be right. Uh, I, I'm not familiar with that. Is that another? Is that the way it is in other translations, or is that the literal meaning? Okay. Well, that would only be more instructive. That that birth needs to be accomplished from God Himself. Your spiritual birth needs to be accomplished by God. So these are just two examples, but hopefully very. Um, very clear to you that we want to take some time to observe these similes and metaphors. Observe the things that are alike in these comparisons because they're really rich and they can be very instructive. Questions before we move on? Yeah. Yeah, that's a good observation because it does say unless this happens first, this other thing can't happen. Yeah, so there is that there is an order even in considering this metaphor. That's a good observation. So we're, we've looked at four, four of these fingers so far. Not only do we want to look at things unlike, but our fifth thing, or things alike, our fifth fingers, we want to look at things that are unalike. Things that are highlighted in their difference. Uh, two ways that I want to point out to you for how we do this. First, one we've kind of already covered, we're looking at contrast, or we're looking for words that indicate contrast. I already said, what's one of those words that indicates that? But, the word but, or words like however, although. When you see that, the text is trying to draw your attention to some contrast. Anyone observe that? Since we've already talked about it, I'm not going to talk about it further right here. But there's another way that we can, where things are highlighted as being particularly different, or particularly unlike, is with the unexpected and with irony. Now, irony is a tricky term. It's one of the hardest to explain, I think. And uh, there are some people who have a pretty good grip on irony, and they get very upset when you call things ironic when they're not, when they're technically not. So to avoid that, I'm just going to say, look for irony and the unexpected. To give you an example of this, think about Peter. Peter is famous for denying Jesus three times, right? Uh, He denies Jesus in front of various, various various people. But there's an irony to his denials because of what, irony or unexpected, because of what he had previously claimed or what he had previously said to Jesus earlier that evening. What had he said? That's right. Jesus says, all of you are going to fall away. And he says, even if everybody else does, I'm never going to fall away. I'm not like them. I'll stay with you to the end. But Peter is the biggest denier that we hear about in the scriptures out of any of the disciples. So there's a little bit of irony there. And it draws our attention to the things that are not similar. What is unalike when it comes to Peter and his denials? What two things are very different based on 
obedient to Jesus than what actually happens. Okay, yeah, we see his, his claim and, and what actually happens, his denying him three times and his uh, expression of never denying him. We could say that the contrast can, or in a way it's like what Peter thought, what Peter expected, was very different from what was actually his true state, what actually would be what would happen. And this, this happens with us too, right? We, are, we can definitely be overconfident just like Peter. That, the irony, that unexpected nature, that is, uh, there's a, that highlights the difference there. Yeah, great. Ah, that's really good. I hadn't noticed that before, but yeah. <clears throat> so we're looking for these types of things. Let me point you to another example of this. Go to the book of John. Oh, I think we're actually already in John. Yes, John 11. <clears throat> I think this is true irony. Here's an example of someone saying something that what is actually true in his statement is the opposite of what he intends. <clears throat> this is Caiaphas. Caiaphas is saying something about Jesus right after it seems like everybody is following after Jesus. This is right after he's raised Lazarus from the dead. Look at what John says, starting in verse 47. Therefore, the chief priests and the Pharisees convened a council and were saying, What are we doing? For this man is performing many signs. If we let him go on like this, all men will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all. Nor do you take into account that it is expedient for you that one man die for the people and that the whole nation not perish. Now we'll just stop right there for a second. What's the irony of his statement? Alan? Yeah. Can you... Uh... Yes, and if you read the next two verses, John makes sure that we don't miss the irony of this. He says he's the high priest. He doesn't realize it, but he's prophesying. He means we've got to get rid of Jesus. We have to kill Jesus or else the Romans will take away us. They'll take away our position. They might even kill us. They might even attack our people. If ever one guy to die, this person Jesus, for all of us to suffer. But the theological, or theologically is being quite profound that God indeed had intended for one sacrifice to cover and prevent the suffering and death eternally of those who would believe in him. So there's a difference there. There's a highlight difference between what Iaphas and what man intended for Jesus and what God had already intended all along. Highlights that those things unlike. <clears throat> yeah, and then there's another irony, right? <laughs> that they would indeed come to destroy them despite their efforts. <clears throat> That's good. So we're looking for things like that. Uh, just for the sake of time, I won't look at the Mark 5 passage, but just to summarize it for you. And Mark 5 is the account of the woman with the, the hemorrhaging issue, with the bleeding issue, who comes up to Jesus and, and touches his garment. But if you remember the situation, Jesus is being thronged. There are crowds all around him. He's probably being, people just trying to reach out for him, people trying to get close to him. He's being bumped on every side from people. But at one instance, right after the woman reaches out and touches Jesus' garment, Jesus turns around and says, who has garments? And that's unexpected. I don't know if I'm it high, but that's very unexpected. Because why? Because no one's touching him. And that's what the disciples say. First, I like how it, uh, I recounts it. First, they deny it. Oh, it was me. But then they're like, wait, Jesus, everybody's touching you. How do you say this? But that highlights the difference between this woman's touch and everybody else's touch. She was touching him because she believed that if she just touched him, she would get well. Her touch, you say, was different. This was a touch of faith. It was a touch of belief. It was different than just the touching of everyone around. But that's highlighted for us as being different because of that unexpected statement from Jesus. So, fifth finger, we're looking for things unlike. Not only through contrasting words like but, but also through irony unexpected. One last one to go. And this, you may say, we run out of fingers. That's because the last one is the palm. The last thing we want to look for, this is kind of a special type of observation, is things that are true to life. Observe things that are true to life. Now, you may say, but all the Bible's true. Yes, that's, that, that is true as well. But what, I, what do I mean by this? You're looking for specifically not so much a connection between the Bible and another part of the text, but in a connection of the Bible 
and the experience of its characters to your own life. You're trying to, uh, in a sense, put yourself in the shoes of the, the people in the Bible or trying to take their situation and say, have, have I gone through that? What's similar about um, what they do or the situation that they're placed in? Trying to get your hands, so to speak, on what's happening in a certain situation. So that's why I remember it with a palm, trying to get a good grip on it. You're looking for what's true to life. And we can, we can go back to Peter, right? We already mentioned rather infamous or very poignant that he denies Jesus three times. But that was after claiming that he would not deny Jesus. And he probably was very sincere in that claim. He says, Jesus, I love you so much, I'm not going to deny you. When you think about that, that's so true to life. That's what we experience, right? We've all been there. We've all been in a place where we say, oh, I'm never going to do this thing. And then we find ourselves doing it. And we don't even expect to. We might say something like, um, yeah, I might have lustful thoughts every now and again, but I'll, I'll never look at pornography. Or we might even be like the disciples in the garden. We say, yeah, I know prayer is good. I don't need to pray. I mean, I'm tired. I'm a little depressed. And God's going to do his perfect will anyway, so I'll be fine without. You know exactly that situation. We've been there. And it's very true to life. We want to take note of that. Or think about David. He's a, someone who had a lot of just miraculous things happen in his life. God just delivering him in many different situations. Of course, David and Goliath being one of the most famous. But look at 1 Samuel 27. Something really poignant happens here. First Samuel chapter 27, and let's look at the first four verses. Verse 1 says, Then David said to himself, Now I will perish one day by the hand of Saul. There is nothing better for me than to escape into the land of the Philistines. Saul then will despair of searching for me any more in all the territory of Israel, and I will escape from his hand. So David arose and crossed over, he and the six hundred men who were with him, to Achish, the son of Maok, king of Gath. And David lived with Achish at Gath, he and his men, each with his household, even David with his two wives, Ahinoam the Jezreelitess, and Abigail the Carmelitess, Nabal's widow. Now it was told Saul that David had fled to Gath, so, no, so he no longer searched for him. And you might say, well, what's so true to life about that? What are, you, what are you getting at there in those first four verses? Well, look at the context. What just happened in the previous chapter? Yeah, this was a miraculous deliverance from God. David spared Saul's life because Saul came after him with his army. But while Saul was sleeping, David was able to slip into the tent, or slip into the camp. I believe he took the the spear that was next to Saul. And uh, he got out of there and confronted Saul the next day and said, Look, God delivered you into my hand, but I didn't touch you because you're the Lord's anointed. Why are you coming after me to try and kill me? And Saul acknowledged his fault and he said, David, you're right. You're going to prosper. God's going to prosper you. I'll leave you alone. That appears right before chapter 27. Now, there could be some passage of time. There likely was some passage of time between 26 and 27, but the writer has put them both next to each other. And it shows us something that I think is very true to life. What do we see? What do we see that's so true to life? Exactly. But that seems so odd, considering what? What just happened, right? The miraculous deliverance, and then the very next verse, the end of, or right after chapter 26 ends, David says, I'm going to perish by Saul. Saul's going to kill me. It's like, wait, didn't you just see how God made it so that Saul couldn't kill you? And this is something that we do as well. We, we say to one another, oh man, do you know what God did? Or like, look at these circumstances that God put me through, and yet, he provided it. I wasn't sure how I was going to get through it, and then he did it. And then later on that day, or maybe the next day, we're like, oh, here's a new problem. How am I going to get through it? 
I don't know what God's doing. We do this, right? We shake our head. I, I remember you brought this up last week, Brian, in, in your sermon. The Israelites were delivered so miraculously and dramatically through the Red Sea and through various other miraculous means by God. But I think, if I remember correctly, it was only three days after the Red Sea that they were complaining against God and saying, oh, we're going to die out here in the wilderness. God and you, Moses, you let us out here to die. We shake our heads at the Israelites, but we got to remember that we're just like them. We're just like them. That's very true to life. We often choose not to remember God's deliverances of us, and instead we indulge in that, in really what is prideful anxiety. We say, oh, I can't trust God. He's not treating me well. He's put me in this situation. We don't think about it as pride, but we become anxious because we choose not to remember God's deliverances. We want to notice these types of things, these things that are very true to life, very true to our own experiences that these characters deal with. Lastly, Numbers 20, I'll just summarize this. It's actually something else that Brian mentioned last week. This is where Moses fails, where Moses is told to speak to the rock, and he strikes the rock instead. And God told him right after he did so that because you didn't honor me in front of everybody else, you will not go into the promised land. And so when we think about, oh, how can I think about this in a way that's true to life? You ever been in an experience like that? Where you did something wrong, you did something foolish, and then you saw the consequences of it. Maybe they were told to you, or maybe you just realized them. What, when we see the consequences like, you're not going to get this good thing anymore, what's a way that we often want to react? You're not going to go to the promised land. You're not going to have this blessing in your life, whatever it is. Yeah, we want to start blaming other people, want to make excuses. Yeah, we might do that. What else do we do? Or might we want to do? Yes, complain and be like, what? No, how can you do this? Just one time. I mean, I've been faithful all these other times. Or we might become depressed and be like, oh, man, I've been looking forward to the promised land for so long. I've been looking forward to this thing for so long. Oh, man, life is just terrible now. Or we might become angry or many other things. But what's so interesting is that after this instance and throughout the rest of the books, we don't hear or see any of that from Moses. Yes, he does remind the people of their stubbornness and this instance at Massa and Meribah. But we don't see him get angry. We don't see him blame God. We don't even pull a Jonah and be like, God, just take my life. Life's too depressing now. No. Instead, he continues to serve the people who resulted, or in a way, were responsible for him losing out on this blessing. He continues to lead them. He continues to help them. He writes these books at God's command for them. He composes a song for them so that when they go into the, the land that he's not going to, because of them, He composes a song for them so that they can remember God and that song will be a witness for them when they go into the land. How is he able to do that? How is he able not to become depressed or bitter or complaining? The text doesn't really tell us. And and you could even argue, well, maybe he did complain a little bit, but it's not represented in the text and certainly we do see him continuing to serve. How is he able to do that? I must admit, it's got to be because uh, he understood the value of God. Even though he lost out on a certain blessing, he didn't lose God. I think that's what motivated him to keep going. Like in Hebrews 11, he's mentioned along with all those other people who lived by faith. And the writer in Hebrews 11 says, many of these people, they never received what they were looking forward to. But they were looking forward to something better. They were looking for a different country. And I think we can say the same thing about Moses. Yeah, he lost out in the promised land. But he has something better to cling to. He had God. So we think about that true-to-life situation of someone losing something, even because he did something wrong. We can say, actually, I can be just like Moses. I don't have to get depressed. I don't have to get mopey. I don't have to complain because I haven't lost the important thing. I haven't lost the valuable thing. I haven't lost God. So anyways, that's the last thing that we want to look for, the palm, looking for what's true to life. So I'm sorry I went a little bit over time here, but just to summarize, these last six Observations. What are we looking for? First, 
Things emphasized organizationally. Second, things repeated. Third, things related. Fourth, things alike. Fifth, things that are unalike. And then finally, things that are true to life. Very good. All right, so we've finished looking at these different observation types. Of course, there are more, but these are the main ones I wanted us to, to learn about. Next week, we actually will um, be taking a little break because our missionary, Dan Sayard, is going to be with us. So he'll be leading Sunday school. Um, please come and be blessed by him and be a blessing to him. The following week, we'll resume our Sunday school series and we'll take a look at biblical genres and figurative language. How to interpret figurative language, symbolic sections, uh, how do we handle those, and also uh, what are the nuances that we want to remember when it comes to different genres in the Bible, like poetry versus narrative versus uh, one of the letters from Paul. So look forward to going over that with you in two weeks. But let's pray as we finish now. Holy Father, thank you for, thank you for your word. Thank you, Lord, for uh, the examples of these, these people that you put in there. Thank you for the truths of it, Lord. I pray that we might be able to observe more of it, God. Help them to observe it. Help them to be able to see so that they can uh, interpret correctly and appreciate all that you've put in this book, Lord. Even, even the metaphors and similes, God, uh, they're all so instructive. So bless them, Lord, as they continue to meditate on the different things of your word. Bless the service, Lord. Be with the pastor as he uh, is bringing the sermon to us today, filling with just the joy and the uh, clarity of mind to be able to explain that to us. Pray that you would speak through him. And bless this food now, Lord, uh, as we are refreshed. Praise in your name. Amen.